The Unstarving Artist book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Hey, Lawrence, how's it going? Hi, hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so um, for those who don't know, Lawrence is a visual artist. Um, you're in France these days? I just came back, so I'm back in California. Back in California, recently in France. Um, I've done some really interesting work uh, recently with uh, the topic of social media, with women. Um, and so I'm looking forward to learning more about your story, digging into all that. Um, real quickly before we do, just for everyone who's listening, if you've been following along and you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to go ahead and subscribe. Um, you can subscribe on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, hit the notification bell, make sure that you get notified when we release new episodes, and also make sure to just share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues, people that you think would benefit from it so we can grow the impact and be motivated to bring more interesting people like Lawrence to you so you can hear more of their stories. Um, we're also looking for help with producing the podcast. So that's going to be um, just improving the uh, the long-form episodes, but also creating content clips and things like that that we can share on social media to grow the reach. So if that interests you, if you have experience in producing podcasts, if you ex have experience in video editing, or if you're just hungry to learn and you feel like you love this challenge, go to unstarvingartists.com slash producer, and you can learn more about that opportunity there. So without further ado, Lawrence, let's get into um, what you've been working on. Um, I gave a bit of a brief intro to you, but why don't you just say at a high level, you know, a little bit about yourself and, and what you've been working on? Sure. So I'm originally French or French born and I moved to the USA 10 years ago and that did impact my path as an artist because I used to work uh, in a different field. I, I trained, uh, I have an MBA and I worked in marketing for a long time and I was, you know, working on my art in parallel. And when I moved to the USA, it changed my daily life. I had I quit my job in France and I was working in the USA for some startups, but then I was uh, then in New York and I got very inspired by the city, all the art I was seeing and the um, people I met. And, you know, I was there thinking maybe it's the right time for me to, to go further with my art. Cool. Because I was doing it more as a hobby. Um, and I still had this dream to uh, to do something more with it. Cool. And I realized that I needed to be full time on 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 that to go somewhere. So the combination of my change of career and place, uh, I guess, pushed me to um, to do it. Help jumpstart that transition. And yeah, sometimes being somewhere else gives you a new perspective. So where in, where just, in uh, France did you grow up? I grew up near Paris. Okay. I lived in Paris, let's say Paris area. Okay. So and tell me more about that. What was it like growing up outside of Paris? Yeah, I mean, I love Paris. It's my hometown and... I really enjoyed it. I guess that also gave me the opportunity to be exposed to, to art 
Um, I would say that I was lucky to have a mother who is very much an artist herself and um, very interested. Uh, so she would take us, you know, to any art exhibition. And that certainly um, gave me the base for, or at least it fed my growing interest for, for art back then. So yeah, so somebody as somebody who's not French who who knows Paris, um, you know, uh, that area is known for a lot of incredible uh, masters of art, the museums, things like that. Um, but I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, is there a large culture of people that actively paint today that work on that craft, that work on art and practice that um, in the city? Yeah, sure, of course. I mean. I think there are artists everywhere in the world, and uh, Paris is one of them. Uh, of course, Paris is maybe not um, at the place where it used to be back in the you know beginning of the 20th century, where it was really the heart of all the avant-garde and all the artists of the world were going to Paris if they wanted to uh, get into the art world. Now I would say, luckily, the world is more globalized. I say luckily for artists because it means you don't have to be in one specific place to connect with people. But back then, you had to be where the people were. So you say more about that. What was happening in the, the 90s in Paris? What was this avant-garde movement? Well, when you think about, um, I would say, the, I would say the, the start of it would be uh, the Impressionist movement and the artists started to gather in Paris and then it kind of attracted some other movements, other younger artists in, in the following. So if you think of uh, Matisse and Picasso, they were both in, in Paris. But then after them, Dali came to Paris. And doesn't mean they stayed there for the whole life, but at one point in time, they all went through Paris. What changed is the World War, the Second World War. And then a lot of artists had to escape Europe and move to New York. And that's when there was a shift into um into the, the the situation got it and you feel like that uh, uh that movement kind of had um descendants or uh life it kind of went on through the 90s you said in in paris the 1990s or Oh, no, I'm talking about uh, Eight, tw- 1890s. 20th, so between 90 <laughs> Hundred to ninety fifty, right? Let's say if you take you know the first half of the twentieth century, Paris was very much the place where all the avant avant-garde artists would be, and even if they were Russian, Germans, uh, Spanish, at one point they would come to Paris. Got it. Then what changed is that New York became the place to be, like because of all these artists who escaped. Europe, they went to New York, most of them. So that was the the shift. Got it. Okay, got it. So 
you grew up in Paris. Um, and when you were growing up, were you, um, what sort of art did your mother do and what sort of art did you do growing up? So, you know, when you're a kid, you, you do, uh, um, drawings that are, you know, appealing to you. And then I started to work with watercolors then oils. Uh, my mom took me, uh, she, uh, you know, gave me a tutor. Uh, so for a while I had an opportunity to learn the, the basis. And then I, I worked on my own. Uh, and I was, I guess, mostly attracted by figurative artworks. And I learned a lot also by reproducing artworks of famous artists uh, that I liked. So little by little, I learned more and more. Would you go into uh, museums and put up your easel and sure. practice? Yeah. I, I wouldn't practice into a museum no no that i guess you need authorization for that but you do or well if you want to spend a lot of time with, i guess if you do just a sketch you're fine but i know that some museum grants authorization permission yeah um and you can even be an official artist of some museums they have that type of program i know they have one at the met i'm not sure about all the other museums so, well, I imagine growing up in Paris, you could just go outside and there's a lot of scenery yes. and buildings and landscapes and yeah. things that you can just paint. Would you do a yeah, lot of that? So I, I did uh, work in different styles. Then, you know, I was looking for my voice and that is that, that was, that's why I explored different things. So I went from realist artworks to abstract and then you know try to my hand at different things and uh, different medium so in 2003 i got the opportunity to take sabbatical leave and i, I was then already working in, in a marketing company and i went for a whole year uh, abroad in the usa uh, and then I did. Uh, was this after your MBA? That was after, yeah. Got it. And and, um, and that was a great time for me because I had uh, a whole year to just work on my art, and I got exposed to um, American realism. I discovered artists such as Janet Fish, which is maybe not uh, super widely famous uh, for the general public, but who uh, is an artist who did uh, contribute to renewing still life uh, in the 60s. And Where did you do your sabbatical in the U.S.? I was in Michigan. In Michigan? What part of Michigan? Yes. Ann Arbor. Okay. And what brought you specifically to Ann Arbor? My husband was uh, doing an MBA uh, at the University of Michigan. Very cool. So what were you doing? Like he's, he's in class. He's working on that. What were you doing, you know, day to day in Ann Arbor? I was, I was painting and it's, Michigan is the perfect, perfect climate to do that. <laughs> Telling you winters are a bit long, so it's great to have uh, indoor activity. And I took some classes 
or participated to some art studios and and then I was mostly um practicing on my on my own uh and I started to um develop a practice of realism towards hyper realism uh, and that really helped me improve my skills you know as as not as a painter but then so I worked on that in that vein of still life uh contemporary still life for for a bit of time and we went back to France I had was your husband French yes yes he is too uh and so we moved back to France to my full-time job uh got two kids and so my art was impacted by that of course I couldn't really work on that uh, a lot Uh, and that's why our move uh 10 years ago to the USA was uh, an opportunity for me to get back to it uh kids were older and I had more time more space uh so I went back to my art practice got it got it um so let me let's hop back for a second so you grew up in paris uh you got it exposed to art through your mother um you had a tutor um did you go to university did you go to college yourself i did go to university but not really to study art yeah what did you study at university Marketing and economics. So what drew you to that? Was Were you interested in that or was it just something you felt was practical? Both, I would say. You know, if I had a chance to follow my heart, I would have gone for art studies. But I'm a rational person and fairly risk-averse, I guess. So at the end of my 20s, I didn't feel I was ready to um to go for art studies and and take the chance to um not have you know a a salary or enough uh, to uh to make a living did you know any artists at that time who were alive in paris that were making a living or was it just you didn't really see many people like that uh that made it seem possible no i didn't have any um I mean, even though we knew of some artists, I didn't knew of, I didn't know any artists who were really making a living out of it. So, uh, and there are a few of them. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, it's a very small percentage of artists who can really claim to be making a living out of their work. Is there a gallery system in Paris where? People will represent artists, and is that mostly sure. where where artists have success right now? Um, right now, I think the the or I guess model, at, the t- at the time when you were sorry at the time when you were in school. Yeah, I guess it was how it worked. Uh, I guess nowadays may have evolved a little bit thanks to um, online uh, access. Uh, but back then, yeah, it was, and 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 at the time, you you had to be connected physically with people to make your network. Um, so 
what changed, of course, is the access to social media and so on. And I'm an example of a person who didn't know anyone much in the art world. Uh, I was, when I moved to the USA and decided to uh, become a professional artist, um, what I did is I connected with some people through Facebook, um, Instagram, and grew my network. And then, you know, I met some of them in real life. Some I didn't because we were too far from each other. Uh, and that's how I grew my community little by little. Exactly. That makes a ton of sense. So when you were in school, you studied marketing and economics. Did you take any art classes on the side or uh, as a part of your degree? No. I mean, I did uh, some attend some le lecture at the Ecole du Louvre, but as a free listener, so I didn't graduate in any sort of diploma. Uh, so it was more learned for myself. Like here in the U.S., if you went to college, you could major in marketing, but still maybe take an art class, you know, once a semester or something like that. So is that, no, would, is it different in, the, in France? Is it not like that? No, it's not like that. I would have loved that system. <laughs> but in France, when you are in the specific, uh, I mean, in the track. university, yeah, track. Usually all the study, the field you're studying are in that track. So I was in, um, in the, one of the universities specialized for economics and that's it. You do management, uh, law and I don't know, accounting, accounting, all that sort of things, but there's no art classes. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I. From what little I know about the European model and, and in the UK, a lot of times you kind of specialize earlier, but then you yes. get through your degrees faster. Um, so there, there are pros and cons to that. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, think, uh, I, would, I would have liked to study in the USA, I think. Well, the grass sometimes feels greener on the other side. Have you ever heard that saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, the good so. thing in, in, in France is... Uh, you can go to university without uh, taking a loan. And, a lot of debt. Know, it, yeah. So that's, that's a huge thing. <laughs> yeah. That is a huge, huge thing. thing. Um, okay. So you studied marketing, said economics. Do you all in Europe have like an internship uh, sort of system where people do internships between years in school? Yeah. yeah. Did you do any, do any internships like that? Yeah, I did work for some companies and you know after my MBA I got hired in kind of a startup and it was a very uh, yeah inspiring environment because we were a group of young people uh, creating working on the creation of a company uh, which was an affiliate of a US company and so we had a solid background but it was still startup mode. So that was cool. So it was a, like a spinoff from a U, U.S. company or they were financing the growth of a new company? What was, how, what was the relationship? It was, it was the branch, I would say. Yep. You know, so, yeah. Very interesting. It was very, um, yeah, I guess motivating, you know, to be in a, small 
but growing environment. So you, you did marketing economics undergrad, but you hadn't had enough. So you did an MBA as well. What Walk me through the, the thought process there. Yeah, I mean, it, the system is a bit different. So that's why I summarize saying it's an MBA because it's the equivalent um, level, but the system. Oh, you did it all together? Did it at one yes. time? Yes. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah. So that's how it usually works. Few people do, in, in France at least, uh, it's a small, very small minority of people who go back to the university to really do like the American MBA. Like, and, and I, I know that because my husband did one. So what I did was a bit different. It's more linked to the French system. Got it. So how, how did you meet your husband? In Paris through common friends. Through common friends. Uh, is he in, in uh, an artist or creative as well? No. I mean, he's very creative for cooking and that sort of things. He's less of an artist with a brush. <laughs> but I, my belief is that we can all be creative in different areas. I 100% agree. I mean, the more I've been around and work with artists and other not you know quote unquote non-artists yeah there's definitely art and creativity and basically everything uh people do were you able to find outlets for your creativity and your art in your day jobs and your work um as you came up you mean when i was working for my previous job Mm -hmm. yeah i mean we had to be creative every day because when you are in a uh working in a startup environment and you know things you have to think out of the box. And that was a different kind of creativity. But it certainly gave me a basis related to my present career in terms of how to market something, how to present yourself. And when I started, started to when I decided to work as a professional artist, I quickly realized that I had to be my own salesperson. So instead of selling the services of my company, the company I was working for, I, you know, had to think about how, what I'm going to say, what, whoa, what I'm, what am I going to share and how should I present it? So it was uh, an interesting shift uh, because it's always harder to sell yourself than to sell something that is outside of you. And <clears throat> why do you feel like it's harder? Because you don't have the, you know, step. That's why people hire consultants or take a shrink, you know, to help them see themselves you know you have such a distance but what i understood is that i had to go and knock on doors to to find opportunities and that's what i did Uh, and i wasn't really aware of how things were working i knew you know in general but not in details and that's by 
building my network and meeting people that I little by little uh, got there. So you all moved to the U.S. about 10 years ago. Um, yes. How did that come about? How did you guys uh, facilitate that move? Well, my husband was working for an American company and he was traveling every month. Uh, so we decided to uh, relocate and um, the company he was working for made it happen. Uh, and we were, you know, willing as a family to uh, to have that experience so the kids could... Uh, How old were your age. kids at the time? Five and seven. So they probably didn't know much English at first, maybe a little bit. <laughs> no, but in three months, they were bilingual. It's crazy how fast it goes. You know, they were in an American school and I was impressed by how they managed to uh, pick it up. And did you move to New York City at first? We were in New Jersey, so just close How, to but New York. working in the city, outside the city? I was, uh, at first, yes, I did work in the city. I was going like one day a week and uh, working from home for the rest of the week. Okay, got it. So, and your husband, though, was he working in the city or was he working in New Jersey? He was working in New Jersey. Got it. Okay, so you moved to the U.S. You're outside of New York City, which is probably the biggest art city in the U.S., would you Would you say? Yes. Yeah. So were you going to a lot of offline events and networking in the art world right away? Or what, did it take a couple of months or years for you to decide, I want to take my art more seriously? It took a couple months, a couple, yeah, for a few months. Um, first, I started to work on my art again, you know, I, first on my practice. And um, I got a first exhibition uh, with the French Institute uh, of New York, basically the French in Montclair, New Jersey. And that was with my realist work. I did an exhibition about uh, paintings that were loosely related, uh, connected with French theme. How did you get connected to the French Institute? I emailed them. <laughs> and, you know, what did you say in your email? I introduced myself and asked if they had any opportunities to, uh, to show uh, French, I mean, not necessarily French, but artists. And uh, Alliance Française, uh, French Institute Alliance Française is uh, an association which is a cultural and educational association. So that's one of their missions. So I knew that they might uh, have opportunities and uh, it, it happened that it, they did. So Now, when you emailed them, did you email just their generic like email address on the website or did you find the right person and email them directly? Uh, I can't remember, but it's a very small organization because that branch in Montclair, uh, the director is basically there the is one, one person. Contact, so <laughs> yeah. It's fairly easy. I mean, and you know, I emailed other people who probably, and I don't remember, didn't get back to me, but she did. So we, uh, she had just, uh, redone the whole 
space and she had uh, brand new walls uh, ready to show artists. And so it was a good match. You know, sometimes it's a question of timing. Now, so you, you emailed uh, her and did she say, oh, like, let's meet and discuss or, you know, what were the next steps between that yeah, first outreach nice. and the exhibition happening? Yeah, I guess we had a phone call, then we met in person, so I could see the space, and and she was like, yeah, when can you do it? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Did she see your work yeah. at all in that process, in those meetings? Or? Yes, I had sent my portfolio, yes. Uh, and the thing was that she offered me, you know, to do a solo exhibition, but then the space was so big that I didn't have enough paintings. So I, since she had two rooms that were independent, connected, but independent, I offered to make a, a double exhibition. So a two-person exhibition with a, an artist friend of mine that I had met, uh, who is uh, very much inspired by French culture. So it was fun to work on that exhibition with her. When you, when you, uh, when you reached out like that, um, where do you think that confidence and that just openness to trying new things and putting yourself out there, where, where do you feel like that came from in your life? Oh, certainly being a a salesperson, you know, uh, helped me a lot because for example, in sales, you know that you have to contact. Uh, and I was working in B2B, so it's a bit different, so business to business. But you know you have to reach out to 10 person to maybe make one contact. And I had this statistic that, you know, when I was getting trained and all that, that most people uh, give up after the third call and most sales are done after the 10th. So... I've heard, um, I've heard like the, our recent status, like it takes 11 outreaches or 11 touches between a brand and a person in B2B to get an appointment set today on yeah. average. No, yeah, that's some numbers that, you know, I was having in mind, but I also think it's a question of timing and for sure need, needs that meet. So for example, uh, the institute, the, the Alliance Française, she had a need and I uh, came to her with uh, the good time. So, Did you reach out to other comparable organizations or similar opportunities at that time where they, they didn't respond or they didn't get back to you? Or, um... uh, I did apply to uh, some juried exhibitions, you know, for some art centers. So that's... I mean, every artist probably have have done sure. that uh, at one point of their life. I have to say, I have mixed feelings right now about all these jury exhibition uh, because I feel that you don't necessarily know what are the criteria. You know, if you're part of the art center, maybe you know the persons and you can have more visibility. But otherwise, it's a bit like a black box and. But some of them, I felt that sometimes you don't even know they really look at your portfolio. They don't know you. So I kind of stopped doing that after a while. I guess I was feeling a bit frustrated by the whole process. 
But the, and, the reason I ask is I think it's just important to highlight that, you know, you didn't just reach out to this French Institute, you reach out to other things. And so we're talking about this one win and this one awesome thing that happened, but there were other things where it didn't pan out true. and you may have forgotten even because it, because it didn't pan out. And I think it's just so important because I've seen there's almost, um, there's just so many artists out there who don't have a bit of that background that you have where, uh, the idea of just sending one email like that or reaching out or going knocking on one door and just introducing yourself. Uh, they're so paralyzed for the fear of rejection or the fear of it not working out or they're making a mistake that they don't take any action. And it's, and you don't need, you know, a decade of working in sales to do this. You just need to be aware of the fact that like, yeah, statistically it might be one out of 10 people reply or you just have to be Mm -hmm. so resilient to, um, hearing no responses, hearing no, hearing all these things besides what you want. But if you can get pushed past that, then you can get awesome opportunities like you were able to do with this exhibition. Yeah. You also have to be aware of um, of targeting. Like I, I knew when I was applying to the French Institute uh, that it was within reach. You were French. They Their mission is yes. to support French culture. Like, yeah, you're basically like stacking the deck in your favor by figuring out who to target and who to reach out to. And I've seen that play out. I have, you know, artists that have Dutch ancestry. So they reach out to like the Dutch Chamber of Commerce and try to do partnerships or do some sort of event with them. And you're you're, you're totally right. Like you don't want to spray and pray. You don't want to just take this shotgun approach. You want to be a little bit strategic with your outreach. And you have to be aware. I mean, I was aware that basically my resume was empty. So I couldn't pretend to reach out to the Met, you know, but they, they're not into contemporary art and they're not for beginners. So you also have to not, ex- yeah, I would say if you knock on doors where you know firsthand it's going to be a no, then you only face rejection. So right. I knew that I had to, you know, grow little by little and it's- but i would say like even if like let's say you didn't know that the met was such a high bar or something like that you still if you reached out to the met and you got that no or they told you oh like we only work with artists that have died or something like that then now you have that data point and you've learned that experientially rather than um always wondered or, or told yourself a narrative oh like i i can't reach out to them i'm not ready for them yet it's like i think it's 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 okay to shoot for the stars um and you just learn that data as you go along if you can just stomach the rejection and <laughs> potential like short-term embarrassment <laughs> and what working if i move a little bit further i started to work with some art galleries and talking with art dealers i realized that they are contacted every day by artists and they don't have the time to, to respond to everybody. Yeah, to respond to just look at the portfolio. The other thing is our dealers are hunters. They don't necessarily like to be hunted. <laughs> they prefer to spot someone and they have ways to do that through uh, now social media, but sometimes it can be through uh uh, art fairs, looking at artists that are show, showing with other galleries. So um, 
Well, let me ask you this, like before, I want to hear about the art dealers and your opinion on that. But before we get past this first exhibition, I always love like digging into firsts because firsts, I feel like are often a big like mindset shift and like a transition point. Um, So with the first exhibition in the US, um, did you have to pay any money to the space to have that set up? No, no, that was because the uh, Alliance Française is a nonprofit. Uh, so their goal is really to promote culture. Right. So they have and, donors who come in and pay for the rental of the space. So you didn't have to put any money up or anything like that. And did they have, yeah. did they have like a party or a series of events? How did they, how did they draw people to the exhibit? Um, so we had an opening and in fact, every month, uh, the Institute would, uh, do like, a gathering with their community. Uh, because the mission to of the Alliance Française, and I know that because I work for them now in San Diego, is to uh, provide French classes and to organize social events. So um, it's it was part of their mission. And so we had uh, an opening and uh, we grew i mean you know it was a partnership they had their community i invited my own and that and then do you remember if was it mostly like uh french expats living in the u.s that would come or was it just people that you know were americans but fans of french culture what was the mix of people that would go to an event like that it was i would say mostly their um, community my because we were a two person exhibition there were friends also of my the other artist mm-hmm. and yeah uh, francophiles and francophones a mix cool cool did you make any interesting career connections or you know um uh in, be introduced to future opportunities that you could kind of use from having that opening and having those events so the, this particular event, I don't think it was necessarily in terms of connections, mm-hmm. but it was mostly in terms of learnings. So I did uh, work on, you know, creating a press release, uh, contacting the services uh, of the uh, French Institute so they could help us spread the word, uh, connecting with the local press, um, Working on, you know, stuff like making a flyer and postcards and all that. So it was more the learning on all the things around the exhibition, uh, uh, how to organize the opening, decorate the and the food and so on. So that was more, and it was great. Basically, you got a, a, a crash course in event planning. Exactly. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun. I, I read a book recently called The Two Hour Cocktail Party. I probably I probably mentioned it on the podcast already, but um I've been recommending to a lot of my artists to, you know, if they don't if they don't have uh an opportunity like this right where they live, maybe they don't live in a big city, there's nothing stopping you from just learning how to throw your own events, throw your own like studio cocktail party and bring people in and uh, make connections and um so anyway, I loved it that that you just learn how to do that and put that on. Um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, so, okay. So you did this first exhibition um, and um, what kind of happened in the months after that or the year after that? What were kind of some of the other milestones or, or 
focus you were working on? Um, I guess it went organically. I kept on working. I joined also an artist community um, that was very nice uh, in my hometown. And we would meet every month and we would we did organize uh, artist studio tour. Um, so that was also, you know, a way to uh, learn. Sorry, can you give me a second? Sure. Can can we make a pause? Sure. So I could switch faces. Um, sure, go for it. Can then hold and I'll um, move to another place because I'm sorry, there's some disturbance. That go I for it. Plan. Go for it. Okay. Is the light okay here? Mm -hmm. It's great. Okay, I'm sorry. It's all right. So you said things went organically from there, um, and you had this community of artists that you worked with in your city. Were you going into New York, or were you doing any more outreach? Um, how are you uh, making connections going yeah. forward? So I started to discover the universe of the art fairs, I went to New York and um, that was also a way for me to connect with some uh, art dealers, you know, as a visitor. And um, I... Actually, let's dig into that for a second. So would you go to the art fairs and meet art dealers there or would there be art dealers would have their own store, you know, in Chelsea or something like that and you just walk in and, and meet them? No, I... Mostly targeted art fairs. Okay. Because it's a great way to have everything under the same roof. So do art dealers oh. kind of walk through the fairs and they are looking for artists they may want to represent and, and help with? Well, no, the art fair is they are selling, they are they have booths and they are representing some artists. The thing is, you know, I would go, for example, on Friday morning where it's slow and so there are not too many visitors, so they may have a few minutes to chat with you. And I was mostly observing at the time because I knew that, you know, they don't want to be wasting their time, basically, chatting with someone they can't make a sale with. So I was very respectful of that time because you don't want to become a pest. So at these art fairs, it's not necessarily that the artist is standing in their booth there's an art dealer for the artist standing in the booth yes okay yes. this is important to call out because i think uh yeah probably higher profile bigger art fairs like that but a lot of the art fairs that i've been to here in atlanta it's often just the artists themselves you know standing in the booth so mm -hmm. did that ever happen at these fairs or was it mostly the dealers representing the artists so you have different kinds of art fairs so you would ha have for example the other art fair which is an artist. That's there. Sachi's so, thing, right? Yes. So if you go to the other art fair, uh, it's indeed you will meet artists. Um, if you go to the affordable art fair or Scope or 
even, of course, higher level, uh, the Amori show or Freeze. These are only galleries that you will meet. Sometime an artist is there, you know, uh, because they are hanging uh, and you, you will meet a lot of artists in art fairs, but it's not their job to uh, to be there. So, but I've, I've been, when I was exhibiting in New York in, in art fairs, I would go there and, you know, chat with the visitors and it's always nice to... Um, to be meeting with the potential collectors. Got it. Interesting. Okay. So um, what what would you say the typical art dealer is like that would be at one of these fairs? Are they certain age, certain gender, certain personality type? Like share a bit about like what art dealers are typically like. Um, I don't know if I can Character traits. <laughs> <laughs> to make a global, I mean, you know, global statement about that. Um, maybe not a global statement, but were there any that you just felt like were doing especially well? And what, what do you think makes for a good art dealer? Let's put it that way. How about that? Well, it's a mix of a good eye, a great sense of, uh, being a people's people being, uh, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's, you have to tell the artist, so you have to, uh, to know how to do that. Um, and uh, I would say business skills, because it's not easy to uh, to run a successful gallery. And uh, a lot of em emerging artists, what I would say as emerging artists, is artists who are below the 10K, you know, range. You have to, um, to sell a lot of them to make a living. So it's uh challenging area so sometime i remember meeting with some artists who were like oh it's un so unfair that a gallery will take 50 percent of your sales well i don't see it that way because they take all the risks they have to pay the rent they have to pay everything and when they're lucky they make some money at the end of the fair so it's it's not easy to be a not dealer. Well, yeah, what's that saying? It's like uh, you know, a hundred percent of zero is still zero. So, you know, fifty percent of ten K is uh better than a hundred percent of nothing. Um Yeah. And and there are people who, you know, are making living without going through the gallery system. So it depends what your work is and what your target is. Yeah. It's I mean it's just like anything, you can't speak in broad platitudes if you have a really good gallery that is a good fit for your, your work. Um, it could probably be an, a net positive. Um, I, I'm sure that happens all the time. And then other times, mm -hmm. if yeah, uh, if they're not selling anything, then you spend all this energy setting up that relationship and then uh, there's no mm -hmm. fruit for you or the or the, the, the gallery. Um, um, so when you were approaching them, you go on a Friday morning when it's not too busy um, did you ever get to a point where uh, people were interested or they wanted to follow up with you? Like how did you ever have, do you have um, gallery representation or art dealers that you work with? So currently you mean? Um, either currently or in the, in that past during that season when you first started reaching so, out to these fairs. When I had no gallery representation and I was just, uh, you know, browsing and, I was mostly 
gathering data, like who's who. Right. Uh, what, who do they represent? What type of work they sell? Um, trying to analyze a little bit how the market is working, basically doing my homework. And I would introduce myself, you know, Lawrence, I'm this, an artist. Uh, but that was it. You know, I wasn't pushing hard because I know they don't like that. And I wouldn't probably like it if I were uh, the art dealer. So mostly create a connection. And, you know, you see them once, you see them twice, third time. Then they start to know your face. And um, what happened for me is that I started to work on that body of work with the Instagram post, which are connecting art history and social media. And in fact, I showed my work to a friend artist who loved the concepts and he advised me to do, uh, to present my work to an artist residency based in New Jersey. And he was attending that residency himself and said, oh, you should do that. And, you know, it was not even in my radar. Like, I didn't even know what an artist residency was. So I was like, okay. And, I, and I, for sure, if I, if, I mean, I heard of artist residency, but I didn't think it would be within my reach because... I didn't know there are different kinds of residency. And so... What is an artist residency? So basically, it's a place where you will spend uh, a few months, between a few weeks to a few months, uh, to work with other artists. Uh, and sometimes it's... You have to travel abroad and, you know, you, they give the accommodation... There are different, very different kind of artist residencies. Some are invitation-based only. Some you have to apply. Some you have to pay for it. Some they will give you a, a stipend. So very different kind of models. And this specific artist residency was in New Jersey, just outside of New York, in um, Mana Contemporary which is an art institution uh, in, in Jersey City. And the great fit for me was that I was living in New Jersey, so I could commute there every day. And I spent three months uh, there. So, so did I you did have the kind of the early idea for this art series, or maybe you had one piece for it, and then you spent time kind of fleshing it out during the residency? Yeah, that was the thing I had done three paintings and for those who it, don't know I, what you're talking about can you explain a little bit more about the series itself yes yeah so the series is uh imaginary in instagram post of the past so what would uh andy wahol have posted on instagram if it had existed or other artists and my goal was to show the place of social media for artists nowadays, but also the links between artists and to share the stories behind a specific artwork and to share a piece of the story of an artist. Cool. Yeah, so I've seen some of the work. You should definitely check it out if you haven't. It's online. Um, and it's just imagine like a Instagram post, right, with 
all sort of chrome around the image, right? You, and then you had an image of maybe an Andy Warhol painting, something like that. And then underneath it, captions and uh, the artists tagging other artists or having other artists comment on their work and engage. Um, what I think is so interesting about it as somebody who's come up through social media and marketing, I always have to tell a lot of my artists that you have to remember that when you go online, when you're doing social media, it's real human beings on the other end of the computer. Um, all it's doing is basically facilitating connections. It's facilitating what would have happened offline and just letting that happen more broadly. And I think for some reason, some folks just don't make that connection. Um, like an another way I say it is if you're trying to think about how to write, to some write something online, whether you're writing a comment, writing a caption, or you're coming with an idea for a, a, an Instagram reel, or if you're DMing somebody, um, imagine they're in front of you face to face, right? Imagine you're, or you're sitting in a cafe in Paris talking to them. If it would be weird to say what you're going to say or propose to write in person face to face, then you need to keep working on it until it sounds conversational, it sounds human, it sounds normal in like a, just a normal relationship setting. And, um, so anyway, I think it's just a really cool uh, hypothetical that you put together because I'm certain if those artists were alive today, they would be using it and they would be connecting not only with uh, the people in their local area, um, you know, like like you mentioned, uh, Matisse and Picasso and Dali, all that, but they would be able to make more connections with other artists around the world. Um, yes. Any comments or reactions to that? Yeah, I mean, you totally got my point is that uh, the connections in real life uh, that they had, uh, we do have them still nowadays, but they are digitalized. Yeah. So, you know, I connected with some artists uh, who can be living uh, miles away from me, but we can still share a connection and uh, react to each other's uh, work and uh, I became friend with some artists that I've never met, but we connected first on Instagram and then through, we did a FaceTime and, you know, we got to, to go a bit further. So yeah, what I wanted to, to show is that basically no artist live on an island by itself, by himself, uh, herself. Um, they were all connected with each other's and they're all influenced each other's and when you are new to um let's say art and you know i met a lot of people tell me "Ooh, i don't know about art um which is okay you know i don't know anything about cars for example um but when you start to learn a little bit about art history you realize that everything is connected and that's what i wanted to uh to share in my work yeah i think um there's always a social context to a creative movement, right? And it sounds so obvious, like you and I are both like, yeah, of course, it's an intellectual thing. But I think, yeah, there are a lot of artists today who, um, for whatever reason, they they almost look, I think, at, at their art as an escape or something that they, they retreat into or that they work mm -hmm. through uh, their issues or their mindset and stuff like that. And I think it's... Um, and that that's totally fine. There's no judgment about that. If that's a way that art helps you, like more power to you. But uh, these artists that um, uh, have stood the test of time or have achieved interesting kind of um, 
uh, breakthroughs or they have commented on interesting things happening at and in their time, uh, there's always some sort of social dynamic to it where they're in conversation, they're in relationship with other creatives, whether it's other artists or writers or authors or um, business people, you name it. And so I think it's just, it's such a interesting uh, series um, and it's a, it's a healthy reminder. Um, and I think some folks, um, you know, social media is a mixed bag. Like some people have a lot of negative reactions to it. Some people see the positive. Um, did you ever go through a phase where you were skeptical or, or cynical about social media and the, the impact it could have, um, on your kind of art career and your art practice? Well, <clears throat> I always say, you know, it's a tool. It's a communication tool. It's not a goal. Mm-hmm. So if your goal is to uh, only be on social media, then you're missing the point. If your goal is to have 20K followers that you buy for $20, <laughs> then you're missing the point. I, yeah, I've seen people yeah. do that. And it, and yeah. if you do that today, like the, the all the platforms know it. So they actually will derank all your content. So it actually doesn't even help you to do that. It just makes yes. you feel good for a little bit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's so easy to identify if you have real followers or not that it basically ruins the effects of doing it, in my view. And, you know, the art world is fairly small, uh, so there are so many collectors who are willing to follow an artist. Uh, so I think it's more interesting to be focusing on creating connections, as you were saying, than just go for that virtual fame. Vanity metrics. That's what I've heard yes. it called. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, I think it, it's just if you, the way I would describe what you're just saying is like, um, just remembering that, yeah, you're at the end of the day trying to connect with other human beings. And um, if you keep, that in mind, the goal of like building new relationships, creating opportunities, moving things off of social media to either phone calls or video calls or in-person meetings. Um, it's the most powerful tool that's yeah. ever existed. And, you know, if I look at how we connected, it's it's kind of you interesting and I? because, yeah, I mean, you posted on LinkedIn that you were looking for guests, Sally mention my name but i met sally through a platform created by an art historian who uh bernadine franco who is focusing on women artists and she has she had and now she i think she she stopped her instagram account but a very small amount of followers i connected with bernadine and met sally through bernadine and we did then she she's a curator, so she invited me to participate in an exhibition, and we connected like this. So I met Sally thanks to Bernadine on Instagram, and you know, little by little, that's how connection happens. Yes. So, yeah, you have to build your community and to make it, to use it, I think, as a tool, and um, to share. Not to, if it becomes a burden, then it's, it, it's a problem. But you might have to, did you, when you were first learning social media, was there a time where it felt uncomfortable? It felt, um, 
like you weren't getting it or were you pretty digitally native and pretty quick to pick up those sort of tools? I think I was fairly comfortable with it. And um, I learned also little by little. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there is this great thing called Google where you can ask a lot of questions. <laughs> so I did listen to a lot of webinars. It is incredible um, how much like like free articles on Google, free YouTube videos about technical questions. Like how do you change your Instagram handle or how do you yeah. add an Instagram hashtag? Like any basic technical question, you can get free content on. You know, more advanced questions about strategy and uh, things like that. Yeah, maybe it's more hit and miss. But for if you're really a beginner, like there's so much free, uh, useful uh, resources out there for sure. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of content. I I did when I started, uh, you know, I had to learn how to create a website. I had never done that before. So I went online and how do you create a website? And when I created my blog, how do you create a blog? And, you know, if you spend some time to uh, learn and look around, you eventually learn the thing. Um, so so how many I, pieces of work did you have in this series in total? Nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, between two and three hundred, I would say. Wow. And... Yeah. Are you still adding to it or do you feel like it's something that you've kind of digested and, and processed and moved so, on? Right now, I'm in a process of working on two body of works at the same time. So the Instagram post, I'm still, you know, adding to it. Um, but I would say at a less higher pace. Frequency. I used, yes, that I used to. And right now I'm working on a new body of work. Uh, which is still within the same um, spirit of analyzing uh, famous artworks or at least uh, images that are part of the pop culture, society culture. Uh, So still in the appropriation path and to highlight... um, the place of women uh, in in comics nowadays. So okay. it's, it's different approach, uh, and because yeah, the place of women is something that is important for me well, in I, society. I want to talk more about that, but before we get into this mm-hmm. next series, um, three hundred pieces in the in the Instagram post series. That's that's a yeah. lot to me. That's impressive. Um, what's um. Walk me through what's your thought process? How do you decide um, when you're going to add another piece to the series? Um, what what was that like? How do you decide you know whether something is worthy of con- uh, capturing and and repurposing in that way? Um, so if I go back to the artist residency, that's when I started to really work on my series. So I knew I had three weeks, three months. Sorry, well, okay, I need to create at least twelve artworks. Um, basically one per week and uh, that's what I did to be gallery ready so because you can't really show your work to a gallery if you don't if you have only two artworks and I, I figured that if I had at least between 15 yeah that would be a reasonable amount and that's what I did and in fact 
I guess I was very lucky to be at the right time with the right work because I got galleries who got interested in my work. So they reached out to me uh, through the residency or through my network, uh, personal network. So I started to show my work after that. Where were you showing it? In New Jersey or New York or? First New York, then Miami during uh, one of the art fair in Miami during the big art week in Miami in December. And then from, from that point, you know, I started to be contacted by a third gallery and a fourth one. So my network grew like this. So let's, yeah, let's dig into this a little bit more. So you're in the residency and do you feel like, were there, was there any one or two details about, um, what happened, whether it was your subject matter or the residency being connected to the right people or you uh, putting yourself out there and reaching out to galleries. What were what do you think were the things that helped with that transition from the residency to the success you were having showing your work? Um, I I think it it did profit pro. Uh, it made me more professional in the sense of you know how things are done in in the art world. Uh, and when I say the art, well, I should say art sector. Um, so how to um, present my resume, uh, an artist's resume is a little bit different from a business resume. Um, how to, yeah, price my work. Uh, was there was there like a gallery owner, though, that came to the residency and, and saw you there? Like what? What was the actual, fact, you know, tactical thing that led to people wanting to show your work in New York and then Miami? Yeah. So, in fact, it it was not critic who uh, who would visit. There were also an art gallery, but there was this art critic who came, who is working regularly with the gallery and with the residency, and he saw my work and th- you know and thought my work could be interesting um, for his wife who's not dealer. Uh, so he uh, made the connection. And then the gallery in Miami was through a personal so, contact. So this of art mine. critic made a connection to a gallery yes. in New York. Yes. And was the gallery in New York his wife's gallery or was it? A, yes. Got it. Okay. Got it. And when he came by the residency, you know, did the person writing the residency say, oh, you've got to check out Lawrence. Her work's amazing. Did, was there any sort of, framing it up or do you feel like he just kind of no, he, wandered he, we were, and found your your work we in eight residents so he looked at all eight. the work of everybody and you know he gave some advice he's a very uh, kind person and then he does that you know because he i think he loves to help uh, artists did any of the um, other eight have their work also end up in his wife's gallery or was it just you uh, for that time, it was just me, but, you know, other artists had different, uh, background. Some were more advanced than I was at the time and already had gallery representation. Right. So everybody was different, I would say. So it was not like we were competing with each other for the same 
person. No, 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 absolutely. And I'm, I was just more curious about just the, the, the odds of that, but it sounds like, yeah, some of them were already more advanced and had success under their belt. Um, all right. So do you feel like was the critic just looking at your work or did he also kind of look at you, your professionalism, whether like you would be somebody that could actually, you know, produce more work and be a helpful partner with, was there any dynamic about him judging you as a person, as an artist in the process? Do you feel? At the time, I think he mostly looked at the work. Of course, we chat. I mean, you know, we're human beings, so we connected and uh, we were polite with each other. <laughs> no, I mean, we were, you know, just regular connection. Uh, and then I met with his wife who came to visit me at the residency and we had a good chat. And of course, it, we clicked also on a, at, at a human level. Yeah. Uh, and that's how it happened. Yeah. The reason I ask, you know, I don't think you have to be, you know, this really extroverted, affable person to have success as an artist. But I, I think you, you want to be a polite, professional, just a good kind of um, courteous individual. Because if they get a sense that you're going to be difficult to work with, even if your art's the best art in the world, um, you know, life is short. They probably, it'll probably deter people from wanting to work with you. Do you yeah, feel like that's fair? Great, yeah, I read a great article once that was, you know, the 10 points that make art galleries want to work with an artist. And it was nothing about the work. It right. It was all the professional. Soft skills, uh, as they say. Yeah. And also like, will you deliver the work on time? Will it be nicely packaged? Uh, will you send the right photos? I mean, everything that makes you a good professional person and uh, having worked for um, demanding clients and demanding bosses before, uh, that was that came naturally to me, but I guess not everybody is on the same thing. I think, yeah, uh, I think it's easy day. to take that for granted if you have that background, but I think it's I would not discount how important that was to you making those connections and having that breakthrough. And one day I was chatting with uh, one of my galleries and my art dealers and she was like, oh yeah, I stopped working with that artist because she was so difficult to work with and always drama. And so I was like, you know, it was interesting to have that background that beyond the quality of the work, if you become pain uh, they have hundreds of artists available so of course if you are a basket i guess you can probably be uh you know uh, uh, acting as a diva but not everybody is <laughs> <laughs> yeah and why make your uh life harder than it needs to be why make uh it do anything to harm your chances of, of having connections and opportunities, you know, come to you in your life. Yeah. That being said, uh, most of the artists I, I, I know are not far from being diva and, you know, we're all doing our job, right? And, you know, it's just a few small percentage that probably are a little bit out, out of that, but usually most people do their work as it should. Yeah. And I mean, you're probably... You are just naturally by being in the gallery system now, connected with other artists that are probably in uh, similar strata as you are. 
it, that will just self-select for people that have that level of professionalism. So you just might not be exposed to some of the other artists out there that are like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love it. Okay. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying you have a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So you got into the New York gallery system, you went to Miami and then it kind of snowballed. Was there anything that you did, um, in those early gallery days that you feel like helped facilitate more people coming inbound and reaching out to you and wanting to uh, work with you? I guess I did invest a lot of time in connecting with uh, the press and uh, because I had in mind that, you know, you need to have some publications about your work. If you want to help the gallery, reassure the collectors that your work is meaningful. And so... Walk me through that. Like, how, would you typically go to local press like in the like local new york papers uh new york tv stations and what sort of media were you reaching out to um local press when i was having you know an exhibition let's say in miami uh for scoop i connected with different uh publications in miami and i got an article in the miami new times would scope um, help introduce you to those media publications or were you just going direct yourself? I went direct myself. And so how would you find them? Would you just find them on social media and, and DM them um, or what was the, that like? Sometimes, you know, it's uh, through the website of the publication. They have usually a contact address that you can reach out to. And um, I also use LinkedIn quite a bit to connect with some um, journalists and so little by little, you know, I grew my network like that and uh, got some connect, yeah, connection with some publications. Thinking out loud with you, my, my intuition would be that if you get this sort of media press, it's not necessarily going to give a lot of reach and awareness about what you're doing to the masses, but mm -hmm. for people that are kind of, you know, in the know, in the industry, it's an, it's a really strong credibility indicator for them, credibility signal. And then they like, feel like they can, um, uh, like reach out to you and, and work with you because there's like a, this sense of your trust that's built from that. Um, yeah. is that fair? And it's, yeah, I think it's part of the package, uh, that you also, I wanted also to, um, I always saw the. Um, work with my galleries as a partnership and I work with small size gallery they do not have the bandwidth to do that job the you know press a big gallery they have someone who will do that for the artist but we're talking about artists who sell already at you know higher price point so what do you mean higher price point like six figures seven figures yeah yeah, uh, but when you are in the mid-range market, uh, which is between, let's say, 2 to 10K, uh, the gallery, usually it's one or two person max. So they don't have the time to do that. And I never expected them to do it. So when you would go get uh, press, the press would often be about you, the, the art series, but also like the 
uh, event or the gallery yeah. and so that they would get a little bit of press and, and advertisement, which yes. would probably make them want to work with you more in the future because you're kind of helping them out in the process. It's a partnership, you know, you have to, um, to help each other's. I think it's a, a something that's important to, to note. It's like, yeah, if you, if you can do things in your marketing and your messaging where it's not all about you, but you're celebrating others, whether you're celebrating your, your partners like galleries or you're celebrating collectors that have worked with you or you're celebrating events that you're participating in, all it does is build all this goodwill. And then those people want to like work with you again in the future or support you. And it kind of is this like back and forth thing where you kind of support each other and build each other up. Um, totally. And it's another thing that's like, yeah. a, like a, I think a, uh, for people that are uh, uh, good users of social media, social media really facilitates that sort of uh, dynamic well. Yes. And I think you can't uh, approach this uh, business by being solo. Because at the end of the day, you build your community and, you know, you get what you give, more or less. It's not necessarily you give something to someone and they give back to you, but you may give something to someone and then it's someone else who will give back to you. I, I see that as a sort of uh, uh, balance in the end. So I like the saying, the have you ever way, heard the saying, uh, money is the echo of value? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, think about it like this, like you, you're, if you can just focus on putting value out there, helping people, being generous, giving, um, uh, yeah, you, it doesn't mean that that one person you give to will necessarily reciprocate back and buy a painting or invest in whatever you're selling. Uh, but statistically, the more value you put out there, you're able to capture some of that and make a living. Mm -hmm doing what you're doing so i love that image it's just like money is the echo of value with kind of like this reverberation from first actions that you put out there and so you have to have the courage um and the uh the peace of mind to like step out first and be helping other people giving and then trust that something's going to come back around to you yeah and yeah i think that i mean i've known of some artists who feel that they are in competition with the others at the end of the day it doesn't work and when you look at art history uh, most of successful artists were um, maybe not all of them but uh, many of them were working within a community and if whether you go back in art history or closer to us like Damien Hirst in England with the young British artist, he first organized the exhibition uh, that made all of them famous and him probably the most famous of all. But he he uh, gave a lot of energy to promote himself, but also his friends who were students with him. So I think that, yeah, if you work with other people, it's more productive than just think, oh, if I give him this and if I share my contact, he's going to steal my contact from me. No, it doesn't work this way. I don't know if this has ever been studied, but it could be interesting to see it. Uh, yeah, like uh, your odds of having success as an artist while you're alive, how that's correlated with your social network and your connections. Because you think mm -hmm. of like somebody like Van Gogh, who was wildly successful after he died, but he was this kind of isolated artists versus so could be very that's interesting my, 
I, I, I disagree on that. He was not isolated. Oh, okay. We met him as isolated. He was very much connected within the artist community. Okay. And he got recognition from his peers, which is probably the highest recognition you can get as an artist, um, I would say. Uh, so he, for example, Claude Monet admired his work. And that's not a small thing. And he got a very high praise uh, at the um, it was at the end of his life, but it was not not be. I mean, could not have been. But uh, he had participated to an exhibition in Belgium and Paris and got a very uh, nice article, which he felt a little bit embarrassed about. Uh, so he got recognition and he was known by his peers. He was physically isolated, but if when you read his letters, he was he knew what was going on and he had psychological issues, but that's a different things from different thing from being alone. Got it. Interesting. So maybe yeah. Maybe that is not uh, uh, a a good example, but, sure but could be an interesting he got commercial success uh, afterwards. Then. Yeah, that's, after. That's... I, want, I, I want, it could be still an interesting question for somebody to research, um, you know, uh, oh, Van, yeah. Van Gogh I set agree. aside. Um, yeah. So, um, okay. Where were we before that? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. I think we were talking about the... You talked about Damien Hirst. You talked about Damien Hirst and the British artists. Um, and how he supported them, um, and uh, that helped with his, him. All right, so uh, you've done 300 pieces in um, the social media series. Over how many years did you do those 300 pieces? So I started in 2017, really, to work seriously on them. Okay, so it's 2023, so... Uh, uh, six years, five or six years. Yes. Yeah. Um, have you ever, you know, I think a lot of artists struggle with focus, you know, picking a theme, picking a topic, really exploring all the nooks and crannies. Um, did you ever struggle with focus and staying on that, that series or how do you, how do you, how do you think about focus and, and uh, um, doing what you've done with the series for that long? Um, that's an interesting point. Like, that every artist think about like, should I keep on working on the same thing? Should I move on to something else? A I lot of artists depends. I work with, they come to me and they say, I can paint anything. I can paint landscapes. I can paint portraits. I can paint this. And I'm the big, one of the big things I try to help them with is like, you've got to focus, you got to pick up something so that, um, people can start to know you for something and sort of like, uh, have some context about what you're doing and have something to yeah. talk to you about besides just the uh, technical craftsmanship of the work, if sure. that makes sense. Well, spoiler alert, every artist is able to paint everything. <laughs> if you, at a certain point in your career, if you have a minimum of painting ability, you should be able to paint anything. Yeah, it's, but, that's not uh, like a big, you know, uh, it's not a, no, a selling craft- point. It's not a marketing point. No, and uh, 
sometimes people are like, oh, this is well-painted. Well, if well-painted was a criteria for success, uh, it would be easy. But uh, Keith Haring, you know, his work is super simple in, on a, say, craft level. But his message, his ideas, um, and his style were unique. So, yeah, sometimes there's a misconception in, in, in that, like, it's, oh, for example, the most, the question I get asked most often is, how much time did you spend on making that painting? And I understand people are curious, but it should not be relevant, like, do you, you do you answer or do you deflect hours? these days? <laughs> or... I know an artist, he's a photorealist artist. He spends 18 months on one painting. Well, they're huge, but still 18 months, of course, because it's hyper-realism. But if you are an abstract artist, maybe you will do the painting in one day. And, you know, what is the best? You know, it's not the amount of time that is the criteria. So just to say that for the question of focus, I quickly realized when I was touring the art galleries and the art fairs that you need to have to be a brand. You need to have to come up with something that when people see your work, they're like, oh, this is that artist. And indeed, if you paint one day an abstract len landscape and uh, the other day a portrait and then a still life. Right. It will be hard for a gallery to market your work. Very hard. <laughs> what is the message? Yeah. What is? What are you going to say that makes you different? So you have, to, and it would be easy if someone could tell you, "Oh, you should do this," and then you know you go ahead. No, it has to come from yourself. It has to be genuine. Uh, and you know, some artists make a great living at creating more commercial artwork and that's fine uh, and some people are uh, doing very conceptual artworks that have a very niche market of collectors and they will probably never make a living out of it but they their work is super interesting so <laughs> so ha ha did you ever struggle with focus or um, have you ever had moments where you needed to like step away from the series and just take a break and then get inspiration again? Like, how do you, how do you think about focus with that, that series you did? Yeah. Yeah. I did uh, do other things. Like I worked on some digital artworks. Uh, I, uh, I love word-based artworks. So I did explore that a little bit and, you know, one idea leads to another and that's how I came up with this new series of work that I'm working on today. Uh, I try to tell my artists, yeah, like, always... if you are working on a series or a topic like you have, doesn't mean you can't work on other things, like you said, word art or digital yeah. art. But you just, I call that like a R&D, like research and development in business. And you don't have to show your R&D to I the public it. at the same time. You can have this sort of uh, firewall between it. And uh, yes. a lot of artists feel like they just have to let everything hang out. They have to just publish everything right away. And that's like a big yeah, well, that's, uh, insight. That's a great advice. I mean, a few artists are 
minority of artists have been able to uh, to to go with very different styles, but they were having it's it's over a long period of time usually. Let it incubate. Uh, Do it in private. And, Explore it before yeah. you bring it forward. Yeah, like if you take Mondrian, he started to paint to paint landscape, and he ended up with lines and blocks of colors, but there was a long, you know, intellectual process behind and it took decades for him to, to evolve. So uh, yeah, he, um, it, it was part of a process. And usually as I, I love the R and D approach that you're sharing. And if someone is doing very different styles of work, um, maybe sometimes there is a common point behind, but you have to then to show it, just to emphasize what is that. Right. Or you have to maybe just think about it for a while, like turn it over in your head, and then you might eventually realize, oh, like even though I thought these two things were different, there's actually a common theme or a connection and that I just wasn't aware of at first. Um, So tell me, okay, a little bit about it. It sounds like you were doing this series and somehow it helped birth this new series about women and the role of women in comics. Tell me a bit about that connection, how that kind of grew out of what you were doing. So it grew out of doing my post-series and looking back at art history. It quickly became, you know, obvious that women were left out of art history books for a long time. And I grew more and more interested in learning about different women artists, not only artists, also art collectors or art dealers women who helped other artists achieve uh, fame and recognition. So so that, you know, led me to um, create a collaborate, to, to, to work on a collaboration with a platform called Art Girl Rising. So we did, uh, I did a series of work about women abstract expressionist artists and they had they created a T-shirt with the name of these women, and I made paintings about them. So we, I did that. Um, it's interesting. Then, you know how we've been talking about the social connections? You did the posts. You have Warhol and other people commenting on that. You know, I'm not making an excuse for women being excluded, but I, I just wonder if there's an interesting tie there where, you know, if these men are all getting together as men, they can, like, network with each other, and maybe they weren't as comfortable networking with women or letting women into their spaces or... I know there's kind of a, an element there. Have you ever made that connection with um, what yeah, we're talking about? I mean, you know, there was uh, the art world is the reflection of the society, the social so, structure, right? Yeah. So in the back in the fifties, women uh, were expected to stay home and raise kids, uh, and uh, the women artists. And there wasn't were, there wasn't modern media where they could just connect with people directly. Like the the only media was like the centralized media, and the people that were running it were you know, mostly yeah. men. So they kind of controlled and, access to sharing sure. things. And prejudice, you know, um, social uh, prejudice are hard to um, fight against. It takes time. So you know how, um, you know how, little. right. And you know how, I know there are a lot of women that used to write under men's names, you know, authors, mm-hmm. were there female painters and artists that would uh, paint under male names? Was that a thing? Well, for example, there's uh, 
Grace Hartigan, who first started to, uh, if I'm correct, sign her work as George, if I'm correct. <laughs> and then she, uh, she uh, changed that and she would sign Hartigan. So some of them would try to not, you know, put too much uh, upfront that they were women. And when you see the work, you know, from a Grace Hartigan compared to uh, uh, another abstract Christianist artist, you can't say, oh, this is a woman, this is a man. It's just an abstract artwork. Um, so, yeah, I think they were conscious of uh, the fact that it was more difficult for them. Yeah, and it just it, it's another example, like a, a more perhaps negative or um, challenging example about how there's all these things around the artwork, like soft skills and how you present yourself and position yourself, depending on that time in history. And it seems like these women, some of these women were savvy to that and willing to make adjustments to maybe yeah. have more reach on their work. A great example for me is Carmen Herrera. I don't know if you're familiar with this artist. She's a Cuban uh, American artist and uh, working in New York in the 50s. She went to Paris, came back to New York, and she is a minimalist artist. So her artwork, when you see her work and you see uh, Elsewhere Skelly, it's sometimes hard to say, okay, this is common, this is Elsewhere. Um, well, well, when you are more aware of their work, you, you can tell, but it's minimalist artists, so mm -hmm. minimalist artworks. And she didn't get recognition before she was in her 80s. And he got fame and recognition. And she admitted in one interview that she was not business savvy and that all these men would network and connect and use their network. And then one day she was refused an exhibition because she was a woman and the gallery told her, yeah, the men need to support their family like women didn't need to. So, and it was a women art dealer who told that to her. And the work is this, not exactly the same, but not far. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's one example. That's so interesting. I mean, and I, I feel like I've seen it, you know, I, you see it in different ways. It's not the exact same thing, but I, I remember when I was coming up in my career, I used to work in tech companies and software and stuff like that. And I feel like, yeah, that, that, that some employers would be willing to pay uh, somebody who was married with kids more than somebody who was young and single. But even though they were doing the same work because of exactly what you, what you mentioned. So there's these weird kind of psychological cognitive biases that people, you know, um, that manifest and uh, it's not great and we can work to address them. But I think the, the, uh, the savvy thing to do as the individual in that moment is to say, all right, this is my reality. How can I work around it? How can I let this not be an obstacle that stops me from getting to where I want to go? And, um, yeah. okay, cool. So comic books though, where, why, why comics? So first thing is I'm a big fan of pop art and I'm a big fan of Roy Lichtenstein. Who's, who's Roy? So Roy Lichtenstein is with Andy Warhol, one of the two, I would say, 
major figure of pop art. And if you Google his name, I'm sure you will say, oh, of course it's him. Because everybody has has seen more or less his artwork, maybe maybe if you're not even familiar with his name. So what he did is he appropriated images from comics from the 50s. And the comic book industry was flourishing at the time with a lot of romance uh, comics targeted towards women. And they were a tool to to um, emphasize the place of women, that women were supposed to be staying home, uh, happiness lie in being married to the good guy. Uh, and so a lot of moral tales written by men, of course. And so it was, of course, taken about social context. It was right during Korean War, Cold War, and American society was very much trying to maintain the idea that uh, you had to be, you know, behind the army and uh, anti-communist and patriotism and, and all this type of ideals that were important and are important, but they were reinforcing that, that rhetoric through these comics. And so he took some images out of these comics and made paintings out of them. And all the common point of these women that are in these uh, paintings is they are usually um, stressed and uh, it, the blonde is crying over the guy. And so all these kind of sexist representation of women. Um, I mean, women do cry, but they don't cry all the time. <laughs> so, but I love his work because he did capture uh, a certain image. Uh, and he wasn't a sexist person, but he wanted, I think, to, sh to highlight what, what it was, how, how women are represented. And then he did out many other things uh, from then. So I suddenly... I mean, a few months ago, I was like, oh, but how is it nowadays? Like, how are women depicted in comics? And I was like, nowadays, what is famous is more mangas than comics. And, uh, you know, my kids are reading uh, all these books when they were younger, I guess, more. And I was, you know, giving, feeding them with, for example, Pokemon books, which is the biggest franchise of mangas ever so but i never read them so i had no idea what was in it in fact because this is not my universe so i was suddenly curious to like what what is being said in these books so i i did some research and looked into how women are depicted and the target of pokemon books is from what i read eight to eight to twelve years old so when you think about the influence of the messages that are into these books, it can be, you know, important over time. And Pokemons were created in the 90s, so it did evolve also over time. There were more uh, probably bias uh, and sexism at the creation of the Pokemon. 
So I decided to look into the ones that were created in the last 10 years. And I was happily surprised to see that it was quite more egalitarian than I was expecting. Uh, so girls are powerful. They are equal to boys. They work in partnership. They do not necessarily flirt with each other. They are friends and they work or play together and fight together because it's a lot about fights in Pokemon stories. And so I decided to, uh, to pick and some of these images of girls in Pokemon books that have positive message for, for girls and boys. So that's what I'm working on right now. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so, uh, are you, how, like, so visually, what does the art look like? Is it you're, you're, um, actually taking panels from the Pokemon comics or are you kind of just being loosely inspired by that and making your own panels? So I take images. So one, I don't know, a panel from, for me would be one page. So I take one case. I don't know how you say that. I think that um, the one case is a panel. I might be wrong, though. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So one panel. And Pokemons are in black and white. So what I do is, uh, and they are, of course, very small. And what I do is I emphasize that panel and I colorize it. Interesting. Interesting. So I use the same aesthetics uh, and... Just like Hoyt Liechtenstein would do, take a, a panel from a small comics and make it a big painting, and that emphasizes the message. Interesting. So one thing that's coming to mind for me, I'd love to get your take on this, is like, so when we look at some art or media from a different time period, like these comics from the 50s, it's often easy to, or it's easier for us to see how that culture differs from our culture today, um, what we think is good, bad about it. Um, uh, and we can kind of raise awareness about that and kind of deconstruct um, the the flaws, of, like the relationships between men and women at that time, so on and so forth. Um, do you feel like uh, when you're when you're making a, a, a practice like this, are you just thinking about ways of kind of uh, highlighting those values that we um, no longer uh, hold today? Or do you think about like uh, what are the, what are values that I think are important, and then like projecting those uh, forward through the artwork? Does that make sense? The question that I'm putting out. Yeah, what I what I and did understand is, and I'll give you my answer, and I hope I will answer right. Um, I believe that the comics are both a reflection of the society, but they also reinforce the. Um, rhetoric yeah so um, it's a mirror both sides so it reflects the society but then when you look at it you tend to think that's what it should be so that's why it's interesting to see it evolve for example the place of uh, color people of color in manga was non-existent at the beginning because of course in japan there are a few uh, people of color but over time, they did realize that they needed to address a more international um, 
audience and they did integrate that diversity and they did make it also more inclusive in terms of gender equality. So, you know, it works both ways. It reflects society and then society impacts them. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered right. No, I think you did. I think what I'm getting at is like, I feel like there's this strain in modern art of just um, pointing out flaws in the past, pointing out flaws in the present. And I think there are flaws, don't get me wrong. But I think that there's, um, I think art can also serve society well to try to proactively think about what virtues, what values do we care about as a society and like, how do we put those forward and like live them out? Because um, no, ma no matter what, it's like we have to, if you, if you tear down certain societal structures and then you don't build back new ones or like put new ones in place, then you just leave a lot of people like aimless and confused about where they should go, what, what to value, what's important and things like that. So does that make sense? Yeah, I think um, art, I mean, is great when it makes you think and it makes you see things with a different light. Um, you think about art from way back in the day, like the, the Renaissance era, you know, it's a lot of it's like celebrating things from Western civilization, certain stories, certain morality um, plays, uh, certain virtues. And um, I think we need to figure out a way to... Uh, hold on to some of that stuff that we feel like is still noble and honorable and like push that forward um, while mm -hmm. um, uh, discarding or um, improving or refining things that, you know, we feel like no longer serve us or don't fit well today, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. That's my, my two cents. Um, and I feel like there is a, uh, we need people, people needs, stories and they need morals still but we just need to figure out like what are those shared stories and morals that we're going to have that um include include everybody or uh makes everybody feel like they uh can flourish and have the life that they want to live if that makes sense <laughs> yeah. yeah no for sure and yeah so yeah that's my goal to highlight that society has evolved and rather in a positive way, even though not everything is perfect. And I, I think the other piece of this is like, I think it, an interesting thing would be to think about, all right, society's changed, but has it only evolved? Like there are some ways it's gotten better, but are there ways it's gotten worse today? You know, and that could be an interesting thing to think about. Because I feel like uh, there's a guy named, um, do you know who David Foster Wallace is? Have you heard of him? No. He's an author. So in some famous, he used to be a journalist. Well, he's no longer alive, but he was a journalist, author. He's written fiction, nonfiction. He has this amazing essay called uh, What is Water? And the idea is like, imagine we're fish swimming around in water. And one of the fish says to the other fish, like, uh, how's the water over there? And then the fish says, what, what the heck is water? And the idea is that we're swimming through culture and we don't even necessarily realize what we're swimming through and that it's uh, yes. affecting us. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. That could be an interesting uh, uh, thing to think about and perhaps explore it um, with this series that you're doing, if there's angles on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I love this image. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, what else? Anything else you want to share about um, the work you're doing right now or um, what's ahead for you? 
Well, it's um, what's ahead is to develop the work because right now I was more, I was more in the uh, pre-research uh, part, and now I'm working actively on creating the paintings, and hopefully to be able to um, exhibit them. Um, so, yeah, that's what's my goal for the coming month. Nice, that's awesome. Well, Lawrence, it's been so nice to chat with you. If people want to learn more about you. Where can they find out more about you online? Well, I guess on uh, every uh, social media platform, uh, mostly Facebook and Instagram is my favorite, I guess. Um, and LinkedIn and, of course, my website. And everything is under my name. So Laurence de Valmy. Awesome. Well, Lawrence, thanks so much. And uh, Thank thanks, everybody, you. for listening in. And we'll uh, see you all soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. All right. How was that? Good. My question is, are you going to edit? Because it's a bit long. I, I'm not sure that everything we said is uh, maybe relevant. Are you? How do you do it? Typically, I just post the whole thing. Oh, okay. Well, that's a long chat. <laughs> we did. Um, we covered a lot. What, um, yeah. There. I don't know. Do you listen to any podcasts yourself? I do. So some podcasts, yeah. yeah, are more tight and focused and others are more long form conversational style. And I like those. And so I kind of want to make co the kind of content that I like. And um, yeah, I feel like yeah. sometimes when you're doing the longer form, people take a little bit of time to warm up, but then they warm up and then they start opening up about things and sharing tactical stuff. And uh, you get some really good uh, meat that you wouldn't otherwise if you've said, all right, it's got to be 30 minutes and I have this set of prepared questions. It becomes more of like, just not as authentic, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I guess um, as a listener, uh, I listen to both and I agree the styles are different. Uh, but of course, the having longer conversation uh, is probably making less people having the time to go through the whole thing. That's my only uh, thing is you are targeting a small niche of listeners. Potentially. Um, but there are people that, uh, like some of the top, top podcasts, Joe Rogan, Andrew Huberman, uh, some comedians, I mean, they'll do two-hour shows consistently mm -hmm. and they have huge audiences. So people have very long attention spans if it's entertaining, if it's or educating. Um, if it's not, of course, people will bounce. There are other things you can yeah. do where you can create uh, clips of it, uh, shorts, things like that. So I'm experimenting with that. And that's a way to basically yeah. get people to have a chance to test out or try out an episode and see if they want to invest more in that that full episode. But um, just learning and evolving as I go and just, yeah, selfishly, like I'm enjoying the conversations and I like having the space to really dig into somebody's background and story. Um, and um, I hope I didn't pry too much or, you know, go into anything that's not interesting. But um, I think you could, could see, like, I'm more interested in you and, like, your story more so than, like, your art. Uh, but I am interested in your art, too. But do you understand? You get kind of... No, but I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you made uh, very good points about uh, the focus. And uh, I remember meeting with some artists who were doing and no offense, but hobbyist artwork and who would uh, contact art galleries in New York. And it's like, 
the, the, the shoe doesn't fit, you know? So they were frustrated because they were not getting any positive respond, response. Right. But And there are little details in your story that I think are so important to highlight. Like, like if you, you did that phase of going to the fairs and doing research and like gathering that data and through that process, you just develop an intuition of like when to reach out to the galleries and which ones to reach out to. And so you kind of avoid some of those mistakes. But you could you could very easily see if you hadn't done that, that you might have made that mistake yourself, you know? <laughs> oh, sure. Of course. And I did a lot of things that didn't work, you know, but it's uh, by doing it that you learn. Very true. Well, hey, Lawrence, thanks so much again. Um, this will probably go out Thank in you. a couple of weeks and um, yeah. uh, lo- would love to stay in touch and um, uh, maybe we can Same check thing. in again and in a year or something. Let me know if I can, how I can help best, you know, to share the podcast. Um, I mean, I'm happy to share it on my social platforms. Uh, I don't know what is the best um, uh, media for you when you share the podcast so that, you know, people can click on it. So let me know yeah. what you think is best. I didn't find you on Instagram. Do you have an Instagram? I do. I do. It's um, just my full name, Harry Welchel, but you maybe didn't uh, search okay. my last I was name. looking maybe under the name of the podcast, so that's why. Yep. Um, so uh, I have a Substack. Do you know what Substack is? No. It's, it's just a blocking platform. Okay. So I have about 60,000 people on my list there. Um, so I send it out to that first and then I yes. post it on YouTube and then, um, I create little clips from it and I put the clips on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube shorts right now. And that's really how I promote okay. it. And so once it's on YouTube, yes. you can like, you know, embed it in your own site or you can send an email yeah, out yeah, with yeah. it. You can do whatever you want. Um, so okay. sound good. Yes. Great. Cool. Well, thank you for your time, Harry. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.